So it, that seems to me there's a kind of ironic but very funny true statement that it's a long journey into the present moment. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, the, the variety of things that we were mentioned this evening is various different expressions of that, um, that truth. And, you know, one of the things which has, uh, for me, been an ongoing inquiry is, you know, the, um, the truth of what's actually happening right now. And so, you know, I, I, I come from drama queen idealistic stock. And so, you know, for me... I have ideas and fantasies about how things are supposed to be and uh, how I'd like it to be and um, how it should be. And oftentimes that doesn't match up with reality. You know, reality is sometimes completely different than that. And so to move out of, of the idealization into the actualization is the journey into the present moment. And it, it's, it, it's a journey that has been taking decades because the habits are so strong and yet you know at the moment that one drops the idea of how it's supposed to be and actually is just feeling what it actually feels like now then you're there so the journey can take decades it can take a lifetime and yet in a moment you're there and in the same moment you're gone Mm -hmm. and so um, you know what's actually happening in the present moment is not a small question. In fact, it's a mantra, you know, what's actually happening right now. And we are used to it, or hoping, that it somehow should be otherwise. And so oftentimes our um, little kind of irritations or frustrations or dissatisfactions then end up projecting a fantasy of what it might be like if we weren't having those things. And it's, it can be the case, and it has been the case for me, that I have spent large sections of my life living out the fantasy of what it might be in order that I not feel these kind of basic uh, senses of unsatisfactoriness. But the practice is, is to recognize unsatisfactoriness is something to contemplate. And the contemplation of unsatisfactoriness is the first of the noble truths. It's not an insignificant realization. And we can see that the problem with things being otherwise is actually not that they're otherwise. But the problem is is that they would wish that they were somehow something else. So it's the wanting and the not wanting and the the fantasizing of what it might be like if they were conditions with which we would like. Which is where the real problem is. It's not actually in the way things are happening. So the sound comes, you know, the music is playing, and so you think, well, I'm coming to an evening meditation, it's supposed to be quiet. You know, it's supposed to be. You know, you're supposed to meditate in a quiet place. That's what it says, it says in the books. 
and you come in and the guitar is going and they've got an amp up and you know it comes through the floorboards and the music is here and they think alright okay I'm not supposed to fight with the sound I'm not supposed to fight with the sound I'm not supposed to fight with the sound <laughs> but the reality is is that I'm fighting with the sound so there's the idea that I'm not supposed to but the reality is that I am you know my attention is gripped and there's some sense of resistance to it and so there is a whole practice in just moving into what is the truth of what's actually happening right now, you know. And it isn't often an elegant truth, you know. Everything is dotted and the T's crossed and everything is polished. It can be just simple that, well, I'm struggling, you know. I am experiencing something and I don't want to be experiencing this and I'm struggling. But as soon as we recognize that that's actually what's happening, then that's the key to the path. Because struggle is certainly an absolutely valid object of meditation. It's not an exemption to meditation. And so, you know, you can observe struggle as a mindset. We can observe struggle as a physical body response. We can observe uh, struggle as a fantasy of what it might be if it wasn't here. But every time we bring our attention to what it is that's actually happening right there, then we get a purchase on a way for it to release. So the problem then isn't the sound. The problem is not wanting the sound. And the problem is the struggle in not wanting the not wanting. So it becomes like a submarine sandwich. So what we need to do is to grab it at the closest level. So we start at the outer layer of bread, you know, and then we go into the lettuce and then the tofu and then the potato, <laughs> you know. So we start where we can access it. What's the closest thing that we can get is what we need to actually pick up, you know. What are we, what's the easiest thing for us to see or sense or feel right now? And then when we're with that, then as one is present with what's happening, it shifts. Because life shifts. That's what it does. It shifts. And then we get to the next layer. And then we can be with that. So, you know, and then a whole big, huge thing, you know, a whole big, huge drama festival can be based on, uh, <laughs> You know, and it it is a kick in the teeth to the drama queen, I have to admit it, you know, when it just boils down to something as uncomplicated and as kind of banal as, uh, you know. But when we actually bring attention to that, then what happens is, is the drama begins to fall apart and the resistance to it all begins to fall apart. And one just opens up to, eh, well, Anna is allowed in life, you know. There's no reason why that can't be there. It's just that one has a kind of a story or an opinion about, you know, what it's supposed to be like, you know, how it's supposed to be. So the truth of what's actually happening in the present moment is a mantra that is never outdated. You know, what's actually happening right now and how am I relating to it is a perennial mantra that one can bring in any situation at any point in one's practice. It's very, very versatile, mobile, and user-friendly. Um, because that will bring us directly to what's actually happening and how we're relating to it, and that will give us a handle on where is the right way of practicing. So sometimes we have the idea that, okay, so we're going to meditate now. So we sit down, we close our eyes, and we go into some kind of mode. We're not actually feeling what's happening. We're just locked into something that's supposed to be meditation because our legs are crossed and our eyes are closed and we're sitting on a cushion on the floor, you know, or whatever. 
But there can be very little, you know, sensitivity or feeling or awareness or mindfulness. We just have gone into something that's that's a mode. But what's helpful is to see, well, that's what's happening. So I have conditioned myself that when I meditate, I go into this programmed routine. I close my eyes, I cross my legs, and I feel nothing. (laughs) And then when one wakes up that that's what's doing, then one has ability to then make different choices. Well, how can I sit here with my eyes closed and my legs crossed and not do that, you know? How is it that actually this can be alive and nourishing and revitalizing or at least authentic? At least that I'm present with the kind of boredom I'm experiencing rather than just completely covering it over and not feeling anything. So the question of what's actually happening and how am I relating to it is it's, it's a, it's, it's a million-dollar mantra, you know? It's always useful. And it's useful not only in the meditation cushion, but it's useful in every aspect of our lives. Because that's one of the places where we tend to get confused. You know, we think meditation is this formalized practice. And then there's a gap between that and everything else, which we call life. You know? But really, meditation is about bringing awareness into the present moment. And it's not about limiting it to particular postures or times of day or cushions you know, or corners of the house, you know, or rooms where we practice in, or temples or sanctuaries. It's about bringing awareness into every part of our life, into our postures and our feelings and our moods and our work and our relationship and the way we relate to things, the way we relate to our body, the way we relate to each other, the way we relate to our value systems and how our value systems change. It's about awareness and intention. So that question of the truth of what's actually happening right now really, you know, it pretty well sums it up. And it makes it alive. And it makes it alive in every aspect of life. Now Pat brought in an interesting question that has to do with time. Now time is a real, it's fast, time is fascinating. Because time is completely constructed. It actually has no external reality other than the one that we give it. And yet, because there's so many people who give it a reality, we think it actually exists, but it doesn't. And so, you know, one can see that in a moment you can close your eyes and relax, and it can feel like infinity, and it can just be a moment. You can also be sitting with something which is difficult, you know, for one minute, and it can feel like, get me out of here, this is going on forever, you know. So time is a psychologically constructed thing. It has a lot to do with how we are feeling about what's happening. Now, this society, it's not the only society that's completely manic and completely overscheduled, but has a a strong kind of, I don't know what, collective investment in being manic and (laughs) overscheduled. And, you know, people's lives are just jammed with stuff to do and things to sort and responsibilities and details and duties and all the rest of that. And you think, well, I've got to do this, 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 and you're exhausted before you've even started, you know. So mentally you go through the list of everything that has to happen today and it's, it's tiring just lining it up that way, okay? But if you are present with each thing as you're doing it, 
just each thing, one thing at a time. That all, all that is happening is that thing. Okay, your mind is not projecting into the future about the next thing. Okay, and it's not being dragged into the past about the past thing. It's just present with the present thing. Then, in one minute, a whole situation can completely shift from being frenetic and hassled and and anxiety producing to just oh, there's just this to do right now. Now, there are times when our lives are scheduled and there are times when we are operating by other people's routines and there's times when we're internally directed and operating by our own internal routines. And I know for myself, my life changes as well. And I feel often most comfortable when I'm internally directed in terms of having the kind of, I can create the time and structure and space that I need. But it's, it's relatively rare where I actually have the opportunity to live that way. And, you know, one of the things that I notice, I love teaching, and I actually really enjoy teaching retreats, but retreats are, you know, like, so, you know, and I've got interviews, and I've got this, and I've got teaching, and I've got all the rest of that, and the days are full. But I can, I can say, I've got ten minutes between this and the next thing, and I can say for myself, this is a retreat for me and completely drop all of everything else that needs to happen, any thought about the conversation that I'm supposed to have, the teaching that I'm supposed to do, the people that I'm supposed to meet, what's happening with them, and just drop into what's happening right now. And if I can do that, then what happens is that the tension of the, of the whole thing dissipates during the process of it. And so you can do that. We can each do that. And you can determine like door handles or toothbrushing or cups of tea or, I don't know, getting in and out of the car. It's, that's the time absolutely for mindfulness. You know, like every time you come near a door handle, you think, this is it. This is kind of the only thing that I need to think about is just opening the door and walking through the door and closing the door. There's nothing else in the universe for as long as it takes to walk through the door. And as we do that, we begin to see, well, actually, you know, this whole way that we create time is, is a construct. Because if, that, if we do that during walking through the door, if we do that brushing, we do that with a cup of tea or getting in and out of the car, we create times in our day that are infinite. They're just absolutely infinite because we are completely present with what's happening. And so that kind of frenetic, kind of, i got to get there, i got to get there, there's the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, and all the next thing, and all of that, you know, all of that, you know, a few times a day, we can just let it drop. But in the same way with the music, it takes a certain amount of disciplining the mind because the mind is grabbing towards that which is stimulating and exciting. And so it won't just focus on the door handle because the door handle is boring, okay? The space is boring. The feelings are boring compared to fighting with the sound. The fighting with the sound, you can really get your teeth into fighting with the sound. <laughs> so we have to learn how to focus our attention away from struggle and allow it to rest into something which is neutral or something which is nourishing. Let the struggle drop. Let it go. 
And as we're able to do that, then we can create these windows of however little they need to be or however big they need to be, where we just drop, and the only thing that we are focused on is the present moment. That's it. And then we can pick up the thoughts and the planning and the conversations and the tasks and the doing and the details and all the rest of that and respond accordingly. So it's not like we become a permanent vegetable, you know, where we're completely useless and dysfunctional. But what's happening is we're beginning to slightly reprogram the way that we're working with time and beginning, at least occasionally, to touch the fact that it's a construct. It doesn't have an external reality. And then we can begin to sink back into our own skin. Because, you know, who creates time? Who's internal time? Who's external time? The whole thing is constructed. You know? It's like, you know, who's running the ship? And so then when we are then clear about where we focus our attention, then a little bit more we're masters of our own ship. Because we're not being pushed around by all of the constructs that we come in contact with or the objects that we come in contact with you know so the sound is here you don't need to bother the sound let the sound be you know the worry is there let it be you know the anxiety is there let it be it doesn't mean that there aren't important times that we need to interact with things you know there are plenty but the discernment is there of knowing when to do that and when to just allow attention to rest in something that's just peaceful. So what's happening now and how we're relating to it? How are we relating to time? It's a monster. Who created the monster? Who made up the rules that time is a monster? You know. So, you know, what we do with our attention is something that until we either lose consciousness or are so unwell that we have no capacity to focus is something that we retain our ability to choose where we focus our attention. Nobody can take that away from us. And so, you know, monasteries are a little bit like fancy concentration camps in the sense that, you know, they tweak the the stress levels to the max in certain levels, in certain places, to be to hammer at home that it's not the external circumstance, it's the internal relationship. Obviously they're also set up under wholesome conditions with precepts with Sila, with people who are like minded in a very and often very, very beautiful places. But like one of the one of the things that is a practice that has come from in this tradition is the meditation vigils. Okay, so on a retreat you have a, a reasonable schedule. You get up at a reasonable time. You spend a reasonable amount of time during the day, and at a reasonable hour you go to bed. Well, in a monastery we turn that all upside down. <laughs> so you know we start meditating at 7:30 at night, and we stay up until 4 o'clock in the next morning, and we can do that for several nights in a row, or then switch it and get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and then stay up until midnight. You know, so it's like all of your basic instincts, <laughs> your sleep needs, all the normal things that people think are absolutely essential, you know, just get completely tweaked around. And then you think, I can't function. But that's a story in our heads, necessarily, not necessarily related to reality. You know, or you're sitting and it's three o'clock in the morning and you feel like 
you know and it's like how do you manage you know but you can find ways to manage when you don't think you can manage so you know monastery life is designed in order to begin to really examine the stories that we tell ourselves about what's essential what we need what is absolutely important and to begin to kind of realize that these things are constructed you know and how much we give them energy is going to very much determine how much they influence us. Now, it doesn't mean that we can disregard our physical needs, you know. And when you have certain kinds of physical illnesses, it takes a certain amount of care, okay. But, you know, one of the... I had an experience with this when I was living in Australia that was really surprising because I've struggled with chronic fatigue syndrome off and on for decades. And so one of the main things that's a real stressor for that is stress. If you have stress, it can cause a relapse. And one of the big things of that is sleep. If you don't get enough sleep, you know, it can really tip you over the edge. So I was in Australia and I was there and the Korean, there's a Korean nun there. And the Koreans... They know about determination in a way that makes the rest of us look like just wimps. I mean, oh my goodness, the practices that they do are formidable, absolutely formidable. So one of the practices that they have is called tiger practice. And tiger practice is is that they don't sleep. In fact, they don't lie down. And they do it for a week, ten days, a month, three months. So this Korean nun was going to be doing tiger practice for, I don't remember whether it was a week or ten days. And something in me was thinking, this is very compelling, I really wanted to do it. But I knew, if I pushed myself through this, I was setting myself up for a relapse that would likely take somewhere between six months and a year to recover from. (laughs) So I couldn't do it with willpower. I couldn't do it with force. So how do you do something absolutely mad without willpower or force? And I thought, well, the only way I'm going to be able to do this is if I do it with incredible gentleness and if I bail, if I'm actually not coping. So I negotiated with her some bailing strategies. You know, if my system was packing up, that I would stop. So she was okay with that. And I didn't push. And I didn't use force. And I didn't use willpower. And what I found, to my amazement, and that's part of the reason why monastics have a container that is so powerful, was physically it was difficult. It felt like I was giving birth to a whale on many occasions because I spent so many hours sitting. My hips were just like opening up. It was just agony. But what happened with the chronic fatigue was is that because so much of it was um, connected around fear, that because what I was doing, in effect, was directly facing the fear, that after this period of mad practice, for the first time in 12 years, I was completely symptom-free. Completely symptom-free. So rather than causing a relapse, it actually caused the opposite. It caused a complete symptom-free period of time. So it's like, you know, who's running the ship? (laughs) and so the American way is let me get it as comfortable as possible and just stay there 
That's the American way. Let me just fix it all so that I can be as comfortable as possible and then just stay there. And then we get fearful and anxious because a little something changes and we think our whole universe is going to collapse. And a monastic way is to really work with our fears as edges, is to really enter into them as explorations and to see, you know, how much of this has reality and how much of this is constructed and what happens when we let go of the story. And so, you know, when a person practices in that way, there's a fearlessness that can come. You know, it's like you're not afraid. You're not afraid of not sleeping. You're not afraid of not eating. You're not afraid of being sick. You're not afraid of being dark. You're not afraid of being alone in the wilderness by yourself. Because you've explored fear. You know what fear is like. Yeah. But the truth question is, is what's actually happening now and how am I relating to it is the penultimate question. I've never found one that's not useful. You know, it's very useful. Anyway, some reflections for this evening. So, as with always is the case, whenever there's a Dharma reflection, it's never intended for you to believe what I say. It's intended for you to take take it if it actually resonates with you. If it doesn't resonate with you, just leave it. And if I go off the rails and end up talking gibberish or about stuff which actually goes against your deepest understanding about what the truth is, then don't just leave it. Find a way of coming back to me and and saying what your understanding or perception was because there's something in this which is um, sacred, you know, an, an intention to awaken. And it requires mutual participation in order for that to be held as sacred. So if you catch me speaking in a Dhamma talk in a way that goes against your deepest understanding, it would be my request that you not stay silent, but come back to me about it. Talk to me about it. And that way we honor the truth.